Welcome to the Faith, Philosophy, and Politics podcast. My name is Scott Coley, and my guest today is Susan Codoni. She is a professor of technical communication at Mercer University, where she also serves as director of the Center for Teaching and Learning. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Scott. The subject that brought us into contact via social media and the occasion for our talking today is Susan's advocacy in the Southern Baptist Convention around issues of, well, Susan, you're, you're the, the person who knows this terrain. How would you characterize it? Well, I would characterize my advocacy as just my willingness to tell my story my abuse, my story of abuse in the Southern Baptist Church at the SPC annual meeting in 2019, at the Caring Well Conference uh, later that year, in the print publication that preceded the launch of the Caring Well curriculum, and then other smaller um, regional association meetings and, and conferences and churches. And so that's been my my public advocacy. I've also written articles in regional and local papers um, regarding abusers who were serving at local churches, you know, where there were, you know, conflicts with whether they should hire someone or, you know, someone was starting a new church who had been an abuser. Andy Savage was one I wrote an article about. So that's been really the public advocacy. I've written some additional articles for other publications as well. On the the private side, locally, I've been able to to help and support some women who have been um, either survivors of abuse or going through unusual situations with ministers who um, were abusing others, children in particular. And so that's been sort of a a personal level of advocacy that I've been able to do. And I enjoyed the chance to finally give back in that way and do that. Could you give us an overview of your work in the SBC in, in particular? Well, in 20, uh, 2018, J.D. Greer announced the Sexual Abuse Initiative, and I was really intrigued by that and wanted to participate because I wanted to tell my story. I thought my story would be a contribution, and I thought it would help I shine some light on the problem, especially since my abuse incident occurred over 30 years ago, it would show some scope, you know, of time. And my story in particular is not a good one. And so I thought that that would be useful. And I volunteered uh, to tell my story by sending an email to the the address that they had posted and didn't hear anything. And this was uh, in the, I guess, in the late summer of 2018. And continued to, you know, just send emails and follow up. And then in February of 2019, I got a call from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission uh, from someone wanting to collect my story. It was a wonderful conversation in that uh, I was able to tell my story to someone who listened and seemed to genuinely care um, about what I had to say, believed me, and then asked if I would write that story down. And I said, I would be glad to do that if I could also write my criticism of the convention and how I thought they had not handled the abuse situation well over the years and what I thought they could do better. And she said, yes, of course, please do that. And so I did write that down and sent that to the ERLC. Later, um, probably around March or maybe early April, 
they wrote back and asked if they could include that story in their print report that they were doing. And I said, yes. And then a little bit later, uh, coming up closer to the June, the annual meeting in June of 2019, they contacted me again and said they wanted to put it at the front as the, the opening section of the report. And that took me by surprise, but I understood what they were trying to do. And, and that was fine with me that they were giving the story, not the prominence it deserves, that's the wrong word, but the, the amplification, I think, of the message. Um, and so I was, I was honored to give that story to them, to let them do with it what they could. And then they asked if I would be uh, on a panel at the annual meeting. And so in, in June, in Birmingham, in the city where the abuse occurred, 30 years later, 30 plus years later, I went back um, to, I was probably seven miles from um, the church where the abuse occurred Mm -hmm. and told my story at the annual meeting on a panel with uh, JD, uh, with Beth Moore, Russell Moore, Philip Bethencourt, and Rachel Den Hollander. And so all of us were able to speak and I was able to tell my full story there that night. And that uh, opened up opportunities to, to speak at other places. And then when the Caring Well Conference came about in October, I was again uh, a speaker there and then spoke on multiple panels at that as well. I was not part of the team that put together the Caring Well curriculum, um, but I, I definitely feel like that curriculum is a, a solid effort at educating churches about the abuse issue and how to prevent abuse and care well for those who've been abused. Hmm. Can you talk about what you found in, encouraging about the uh, SBC's response recently? It sounds like that you, you have a favorable view of the, the Caring Well initiative and the curriculum. Well, one of the questions that, that you and I have talked about in terms of this podcast is about institutional reforms around abuse. What I found encouraging was that JD thought this issue was important enough to make it the focus of, or a major focus of the 2019 annual meeting and to deploy uh, significant resources to develop the Caring Well curriculum. And I've done some research just on my own. Of um, I've done a lot of research over the years to try to understand what happened to me um, sort of at a higher level. And I've looked at how different denominations have approached this problem, and almost all of them start by creating a curriculum that is designed to train their churches and, you know, and their professional ministry to prevent abuse and care for people. And so the SBC fell into that pattern of, of creating a curriculum. And within the SBC's system of um, loosely affiliated churches, Um, That was, I think, the best thing that they could do at the time. And I think the curriculum itself is very good. So I was very encouraged to finally be able to give my story back to the convention where I had experienced a huge gap for over 30 years. And I was very encouraged that so many resources were mobilized for that one year period. I also am realistic enough to know that most campaigns are one year. And so the Caring Well initiative lasted one year, and then the convention moved on. Um, JD moved on to other things, and you know other issues were pressing, but also other issues were sort of brought in, into the discussion about 
sexual abuse that were not necessarily related to it. And those are the issues of justice and injustice. But one of the things you mentioned to me was about reform, institutional reform. And I wanted to reframe that slightly because since the denomination, meaning the SBC, started with a curriculum, you know, that's kind of a passive intervention. There's, there was no reform. Nothing was reformed. Nothing at all was reformed. Um, the only thing that, that might have even looked like a reform was the creation of the Credentials Committee, mm-hmm. which was not necessarily new, but they expanded its scope at, that, at the 2019 annual meeting. And so the Credentials Committee existed to examine churches. So, for example, if a church didn't handle um, a racial issue well, then that church could theoretically be disfellowshipped from the convention by the credentials committee would recommend that the church be disfellowshipped. Um, and that would go up to the executive committee. So they added sexual abuse to the credentials committee's scope. And so the credentials committee could then look at a church who maybe uh, held on to an abuser too long or didn't handle the, it well in terms of uh, law enforcement. And then they could disfellowship a, a church. To date, I only know of one to two churches since 2019 that have been uh, removed from the convention. So I'm not sure how well that process has worked. I know that other churches were about to be removed, but they voluntarily left before. With the overwhelming evidence that we have of the number of cases of sexual abuse and the number of abusers who are still rotating through the convention, I think more action could be taken. And I don't know if the breakdown there is in the actual power the Credentials Committee has, or if they're just not responding well to the abuse crisis. I want to assume it is in the structure and scope of their committee charge. That's the assumption I want to make. And I would like for the convention to really look again at the Credentials Committee and determine if that's the only reform they want to make to have a committee or if they actually want to make a a broader step toward reform, which might be something like limiting autonomy to some degree. So that may be a different discussion, but that that is, I guess, what I find discouraging. What I find encouraging is that we were able to, to really amplify the message of sexual abuse in the convention. What I find discouraging is that that message has not continued. It's been eclipsed by irrelevant issues um, Mm. and not enough churches really engaged with caring well. And then the other discouraging thing has been the the really the lack of of enforcement by the credentials committee, which I don't know is really their fault. So I don't want to posit uh, a sort of a relationship ideologically or in terms of subject matter or anything like that between, on the one hand, uh, issues around uh, abuse and sexual predation and serial sexual predation on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, issues to do with, say, economic justice or, or racial justice and so on. That said, um, one thing that's difficult to I mean, it's just sort of conspicuous, right? Is that the folks that are opposed to any kind of reform to do with the one 
are pretty much the very same folks who are opposed to any kind of reform to do with the other. And one kind of response that you get from these folks, uh, what it, whatever the subject is, is well, let's just let's just preach the gospel, right? So can can you can you talk a bit about uh, patterns of communicating, speaking, and writing uh, within the uh, SBC culture that preempt the kinds of questions that need to be asked in order to remedy these institutional failures? Sure. You know, every organization has has its own communication pattern and its style of discourse and every organization has its own culture in which things are said that have meaning in that culture and in the southern baptist convention you know that is true because you can walk into any southern baptist church in any state uh, and and maybe overseas and know without looking at the sign that you're in a southern baptist church just because of the, the cadence of the preacher, the programs that are offered, the kinds of things that are stepped from the pulpit, uh, and even the Sunday school curriculum, um, which is pervasively you know, produced by Lifeway, uh, which is fine. That's part of the culture. But a, a, fa a common response to, like you said, almost anything is, well, just preach the gospel. And if you push back on that and ask, well, why are you also talking about politics? And then you'll hear, well, just, just preach the gospel. And it's all you need is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I, I would respond to that in three ways. One, you know, I've been Baptist all my life. I have studied um, Baptist history on my own all my life. It is inherently Baptist to practice the priesthood of the believer and for that to be a principle. It is the knowledge that we can go to Christ without having to go through an intermediary. And that's what makes us Baptists is that independence we have to go to straight to the Lord. It's one of our defining characteristics, and it's a vertical relationship in which we can go, and, and the way I think of it is we go up to God without any interference in between. And I, I, I totally, totally believe this, and it's part of my spiritual worldview, this priesthood of the believer. But what has developed over time and what I see in the discourse that comes out of the seminaries. It comes out of the seminaries and cascades down and, you know, into the churches because that's where the ministers get their spiritual formation and their education. It has become distorted so that it is also a downward relationship. The individuality of the priesthood of the believer means that I alone can go to God on my own. And there's nothing impeding me from going straight to God. How I think as Baptists, and especially Southern Baptists in particular, we have distorted that, is God will deal then with me alone for my sins. It is individual both ways. And I think that that is a distortion of that. Um, I think it's not entirely accurate from a theological sense. I'm not a theologian. I can't say that for sure. But I think while we are accountable to God and we must repent and ask forgiveness from God, we are also accountable to others. And so that mantra of just preach the gospel encapsulates our relationship with God so centrally in ourselves that we lose our sense of a collective body. Even if we're a member of a church, we walk into church knowing that we're going to have an individual worship experience. We go home with an individual devotional plan or an individual Bible study plan, and our 
personal accountability is almost sealed off by that individuality that this distortion of the priesthood of the believer has created to make it just an individual obligation to repent and reform ourselves. And we see that when you have an abuser in a church and the response is, well, he just needs to repent and change. I mean, that's the gospel. He just needs to repent and, and, and change and ask forgiveness from God. No, he's accountable to the body of Christ. He's accountable to God. He's also accountable to law enforcement and the body is accountable to God to deal with this individual. And so that distortion causes a lot of problems. When the second problem with something like just preach the gospel, which is a, a great example of a standard form of discourse that we hear all the time, is that it centers the narrative of evangelical Christianity around the gospel. And on its face, that is okay, because we are, um, as Baptists, operating on the Great Commission to go out and tell the good news of Christ and bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. I mean, all of these are standard words that you learn in a, in a Southern Baptist environment. Mm -hmm. But for so many believers who do not have sufficient biblical literacy, that cuts off the rest of the Bible. That cuts off the Old Testament. When they hear just preach the gospel or all you need is the gospel, you also hear indirectly you don't really need the Old Testament. But you've really got to have the whole story of God to understand the gospel. And so if a preacher says, I just preach the gospel, then he's an evangelist. He's not really a preacher. Mm -hmm. He's just going around preaching the gospel and, and holding an invitation and asking people to come to God. So I, I think Southern Baptists have spent their history trying to get people saved. But then once those people get saved, they're left to fend for themselves. And they're left to deal with their spiritual issues alone, their personal issues alone. I've been in three mega churches uh, since uh, I've been married and since I've been an adult. All of them have had excellent programming. But in all of them, I know I have felt alone with God. I have felt as though my relationship with God was my individual responsibility. Hmm. And what we miss, I think, that the mainline uh, denominations get is that to commune with God means to do so collectively. As soon as we are pushed into that individual relationship with God, and, and, and based on this idea of the priesthood of the believer and the gospel is all you need, then we lose this expectation of being part of a larger movement and having not just accountability, but having the, the, the culture to move you closer to God my ability to withstand temptation will wither. My sense of accountability is left to my discretion. And so if you have, for example, I'm going to go back to it, a, a pastor who commits some type of abuse, then he may think, well, it's, it's up to me to ask for forgiveness to God, and then I'll repent and be restored because of the gospel and, and move along. Um, and then he may move on to the next church and do it again. But if you look at the early church, they were never alone. They did everything together. Uh, they didn't say, let's just preach the gospel. I mean, they did everything together. So I think it's an innocuous, well-meaning statement on its face. I think there are other standard phrases that you hear um, from pastors that, you know, are not meant to be um, anything bad, but it, 
that phrase and others position Christian discipleship as kind of a, a race against yourself. And it closes the church community to social issues that are important and that are addressed in the full story in the Bible, like justice. So if you bring up injustice, like sexual abuse, and I didn't know that this, this, this conversation was going on during 2019 when I was telling my story about sexual abuse, I didn't know that there were people agitating about um, that being a topic of social justice. I had no idea. But when you bring up this issue, which is very much a, a socially known issue of sexual abuse, and call it injustice and say, um, well, we can't talk about that because we have to just preach the gospel, you're throwing out Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those parts of the Bible. So that troubles me greatly. I think this institutional discourse within the SBC serves it well in some ways and, and harms it in others. I think it harms individual Christians because Baptists were meant to be independent thinkers, but we were also meant to know the whole Bible and the whole story of God. And when you limit it, you open up the opportunity for men, mostly men, who know more of the Bible to weaponize those parts of the Bible that are not really just in the gospel. That those are my thoughts on that. That's that's fascinating. It sounds like in the situation you've just described, there there aren't even really resources to talk conceptual resources to talk about defending the oppressed. Whether it's, whether it's whether it's someone else in your church or someone else in society or or what have you. The term social justice in these contexts, as you know well, is is used as a pejorative. I think it's so so perverse to attach like a pejorative title to a an effort to correct issues around sexual abuse. It, it didn't even immediately register to me either, like what was going on. But it was it was this kind of bank shot where it's like, well, these people who want to address these issues of sexual predation are a feminist and feminism is part of the social justice agenda. Uh, it's like, whoa, 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 what? Like you're a feminist now because you don't like, like in the, in the, in the, again, in the pejorative sense, how much of that do you think is, is in bad faith? If you're comfortable saying, I'm, I'm asking you to speculate about others, you know, psychology, but, but I mean, to, to say these people are making an effort to, to have some kind of reform that would limit the ability of sexual predators to move freely around the convention. They're feminists. I, I, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? I don't know, and anything I say would be speculation. It would be an assumption. Just based on my experience as a lifelong Southern Baptist, I have to say I was surprised. I was greatly surprised when I finally understood that the pushback I was getting uh, during 2019 and, and 2020 in speaking about sexual abuse, it was coming mostly from pastors. And I was called all of the things that you mentioned, in addition to Marxist and, and other things. 
Um, and I, I was told always, you're always playing the victim. Hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, and that's just kind of crazy to me. Um, wow. I was, I guess the better word is shock. I was shocked that I started to get pushback for simply telling my story of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church and for saying the convention needed to do something about it. When this is a clearly criminal issue hmm. um, that not only impacts in terms of law enforcement, but also liability and puts not only the convention at great liability, but individual churches at great liability. It mm. requires a lot of insurance if you don't handle it well. And then to have that called social justice or be called a feminist is a way of minimizing and displacing the issue to kind of move it over. So there's a worldview in the what I consider a hyper-conservative wing of the convention. It goes back to the just preach the gospel, just focus on the Great Commission, and anything else is, is not relevant um, and takes away from our ability to do that. But if you look at any congregation on a Sunday morning, on an average Sunday morning, and if you consider that one out of five or one out of six men have been sexually abused or experienced some kind of sexual violence and three out of four women in their lives. If you just take those numbers and then you add in the number of people who've experienced some type of domestic violence, and I'm really just talking about adults right now. And let's say you have a congregation in First Baptist Church of Middletown, wherever, and there are 400 people in the room, at least 200 of them are carrying significant baggage that we would consider to be caused by social issues like marital problems, sexual abuse, which would be criminal, you know, domestic violence is criminal. To say that we can't deal with that in the church because it doesn't fit into just preach the gospel, you know, or just fulfill the Great Commission is wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. And it's a way, I think, to maintain some kind of power that I don't fully understand. Because if you if you open that door and say, okay, we're gonna call sexual abuse injustice, and we're gonna call it systemic, and we're gonna say that the convention must uh, devote resources to it. Well, they're going to say, okay, well next, um, you're gonna say that we have to start treating LGBTQ people differently. And that's a social issue and we can't do that. So it's almost like they're afraid of opening the door to those things. And they're afraid of anything that is what they would perceive to be an issue in society. But it's an issue within people who yeah. are hurting. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's, it's, these, are, these are people who are, um, the, the example I gave you are people who are in, a, in the church building. It doesn't count mm -hmm. the people who don't come. Mm -hmm because they know they won't be welcome or they know that they can't talk about whatever they need to talk about at the church or there's nothing for them at the church. I don't, I don't understand that the power issue. I don't understand the, the, the desire to label anything that they don't want as social justice or a social gospel or Marxism <laughs> or CRT any 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 discussion of racism now as CRT uh, it is it is mm -hmm. just baffling. Yeah. Well, so that's part of my reluctance to put. I do. I mean, I do of course think that uh, issues around abuse are matters of justice. 
but I think a lot of a, a lot of what goes on in the conversation around justice has to do with sort of higher order questions in political philosophy. And so I'm resistant to putting issues around abuse in that, uh, allowing those issues to be sort of straightforwardly characterized in that way, because, you know, of course, I'm interested in having those conversations around political philosophy. Having said that, I think that the conversations around the issues of abuse are, are actually, they're not as much subject to debate in, in, in my mind. Um, and uh, I don't, maybe it's the word systemic or institutional, or, or as you say, you know, there's an element of power involved. Uh, but to say that there's an institutional problem around it is simply to say, uh, look, you can do all the, all the preventing you want. You can do all the, that's good, right? Do the, do the training. Right, get people to be uh, aware of of signs that these things might be going on, and you can care well for uh, victims in terms of providing care and, of course, contacting law enforcement. But there's a problem with the rules around what we do when things aren't handled well. That, in and of itself, is a problem, and it's just a problem with the rules. Yes, that's right. Right, that's right. Yeah, I, and I would love to. T I'll talk. Love to talk about the rules. I also think there was a gender element, and it doesn't line up when you bring up the racism discussion. So I'm only going to mention gender as related to sexual abuse. I think some of the pushback that I got, and some of the other survivors got, who who spoke at the convention, who spoke at Caring Well, who went around to other churches and spoke, was that suddenly we were women standing at the pulpit or standing on the stage speaking to the men mm. often with a partly spiritual message and mm. it wasn't just a testimony mm. in a sense we then they did something some, wrong yeah and in a mm. sense we were doing some teaching mm. about how they had violated the gospel mm. and 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 the story of the bible and the spirit of christ and I think that gender triggered a lot of those men because, you know, that is a rule in the, in the SBC. It's, it's highly patriarchal. And that was, I think something that I think it was a trigger point. Now, again, that doesn't line up with the focus on racism, you know, in terms of gender. So I can't make that comparison, but I do think the sexual abuse thing had a lot to do with that because I got, I got quite a bit of um, not hate mail, but just, angry comments and angry emails about um, being a feminist and speaking, you know, in, in the church and that that was not, not a good thing. Just for sharing your story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Didn't like that. But yeah, the, the rules are another issue. Yeah. We can certainly talk about that. I mean, perhaps this is related to both the rules and the sort of uh, patriarchy uh, issues, but there's this sense of authority that, appears to be distorted where you've got, and of course this is not true of all folks in the SBC and positions of authority are all pastors by any means, right? But there are some pastors and denominational uh, spokesmen, we might say, do everything they can to establish a pattern where they have authority over others and they don't have to answer to anyone themselves. There's no authority over them, be it in the form of uh, rules or a group that might oversee them. And so the established order is one in which they get to do whatever they want and no one can say anything about it. 
So related to that, I mean, how do you think that this kind of presumption on the part of people in the men in the SBC hierarchy, right? You've got pastors, uh, you seminary president, one in particular who comes to mind, who, who regularly, routinely comments on issues to do with uh, politics and uh, public policy, economics, I mean, you name it, as though he's this sort of um, omniscient authority, <laughs> these things. And this kind of trickles down to, to pastors who, uh, you know, re- repeat the talking points or feel that they have the authority to make pronouncements on rather complex matters that they really haven't studied. And, and, and they have every right to be correct in their assessments. Maybe you could say something about your, your impressions of, the, of these dynamics. It is an interesting dynamic to me to have theologians, even if they are administrator theologians, like an SPC seminary president, to possess the idea that they have the mindset or worldview or even knowledge to become a cultural commentator and to offer a commentary on events of the nation or events of the world. My formation as a Baptist taught me not to be part of the world, taught mm. me not to be in the world, but not part of the world, or to, you know, to, as much as possible to follow the Bible there. The majority of theologians that I know personally are far too busy pursuing their scholarship in theology to even look up long enough <laughs> to offer any kind of comment on what's going on in the world, nor do they it feel like they have... Yeah, nor do they feel like they have the experience or knowledge to to make sense of that because they're not sociologists or anthropologists. They're not from an academic discipline that has trained them to make sense of the world. They can make sense of what the Bible says, but not necessarily about events that are occurring today. So when you have an SBC seminary president who has positioned himself as the arbiter of cultural criticism, then he has chosen for himself a mantle of authority in which his opinion alone is the one that sets the tone for every other pastor in the convention. Mm -hmm. So if he says, don't watch this Hallmark movie because it has, has gay characters in it, then every pastor who's paying attention to him, hears that. And that gives them sort of a tacit permission then to repeat that. And that is part of what creates this cascading culture in the SBC, why you can go in any SBC church, you know, and, and everything seems the same. What, what, what an interesting juxtaposition, right? Because we started out this conversation talking about the priesthood of the believers and this kind of uh, unmediated relationship to God. And the very, well, that's that's one dynamic, right? And then you've got this this other dynamic that is, I'll just say it, it bears some traits of kind of spiritual abuse where theological concepts are wielded in, shall we say, uh, unorthodox ways in order to bring other folks within one sphere of influence into line, right? Yes. Uh, not, not, not based on any, on any special insight, not, not, I mean, not, ba- as you say, like not based on anything really, right? I mean, it's just like, hey, I'm saying this stuff and what that strikes me as uh, just an interesting uh, pair of phenomena. What has happened when you have a theologian who becomes or makes himself a cultural commentator is that that 
sets the culture of the convention to follow his interpretation of the culture. Mm-hmm. And it can it is a contraction of the idea of the priesthood of the believer. Because if I am Southern Baptist, I have the ability to go straight to Christ. I don't have to go through a priest. But if I am a Southern Baptist and I am fully enmeshed in the SBC culture, then I need to fall in line with what the leaders of the SBC say are acceptable. So in the 1990s, I couldn't go to Disney World because we were boycotting Disney World. Yeah. You know, in the 2020 Christmas season, I couldn't watch a Hallmark movie because I'm told that is a bad thing in the world. And so it is that? that is, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, something that Al Mohler, um wrote about that Hallmark movies over, over the Christmas season. And so when, if you're enmeshed in that culture, then you begin to believe that that is the biblical authority, but it is one man's opinion. And I know just from my research and, and I know as a survivor and being part of the survivor community that the ministry draws a lot of narcissistic men. Mm. And that's where you have a lot of the, the power plays that occur and the issues with authority, you know, and them being them having no accountability. Mm. The study of theology really doesn't draw narcissists, not the scholarly study of theology. Mm. But if a narcissist is inside um, an academic institution and is studying theology, and if in this case, if it's a man, he's going to find a way to break out and get that attention, even if he has to create a role. Mm. And in this case, it is a role that has subsumed any accountability to anyone else. And mm. whatever he says now, then will set the tone and set the culture for all Southern Baptists, if they are enmeshed enough to really know that. Most Southern Baptists, I think, don't, don't think about that on a daily basis, but the pastors do. Oh, sure. Sure. Hmm. So it's almost, it's like, it's the priesthood of the believers who happen to be in charge. <laughs> to some extent to some extent it it, it is exactly. that we have priests we just technically don't have to go through them but we have to fall in line with what they say is right or not right and there aren't a whole lot of formal standards for like how they need to be trained or i mean what is right and wrong in the 1980s is is no longer you know right or wrong in the 1990s so it's that idea that concept of prevailing orthodoxy has mm-hmm. really characterized Southern Baptists since they were, since they formed in mm-hmm. 1845. And and the concept itself is, is uh, nonsensical. Right. Yes. Right. Cause like what yes. it's right, like right belief. I mean, your beliefs either right or wrong prevailing. Is it, are we talking about like a, a cold front or like what, <laughs> what, what does that even mean? I'm pretty clear that God set an objective standard. Mm-hmm. And that just because we believe something and it's influenced by social social conventions of the day doesn't mean we can say, oh, well, it was just a prevailing orthodoxy. They're excused. They're sanctioned uh, because of that. Yeah. And what happens is there's this conflation between the objective truth, which which we believe to exist in, you know, moral truth, which is what aligns with God's standards. There's a conflation between that and then... uh, whatever the folks at the in positions of power in the convention happen to embrace at the moment. And, and, and that sort of packaged as, well, this is it. This is uh, God's objective truth. And therein you have the priesthood. Right. There you are. There you are. 
you, you have time for one more, one more yeah. question? All right, so speaking of, of authority and presumption of, of omniscience and these ideas on the part of church leaders, do you have thoughts on biblical counseling? And by, by that, I mean brand of biblical counseling that's, you know, the philosophy that says uh, answers to all psychological issues are to be found in scripture and there's no need to consult uh, licensed professional counsel. I'm giving, I'm given to understand that this is the position of some people. It, is, is that the case? And what are your thoughts on that? I have thoughts and, and my thoughts are going to most likely offend someone who is a biblical counselor and completely dedicated to that idea. I think a good biblical counselor realizes that there are many cases in which they are not trained to, to treat someone. But I think the core issue is that the church stubbornly holds on to this idea that mental health is not the same as physical health and that our physical health stops at our neck. And for some reason, if you have a mental health issue, whether it's trauma-based or anything, um, you know, uh, not a simple, but just a, a typical case of clinical depression, um, for some reason, we believe that if we just talk with you about the Bible or point you back to the Bible, you'll get better. When in reality, it's a biological issue that needs to be man treated and managed as any other physical health problem would be treated and managed, which includes medication and therapy is also extremely important in this. And so I, I, I personally run from any Christian, any church, any pastor who says, let's get you to a biblical counselor, because that same pastor would never say, let's get you to a Christian surgeon. <laughs> and I, I have, I just have a huge problem um, with conflating mental health care with, with spirituality. Yeah. It is true that if you have a strong spiritual life, you may have a, your mental health may benefit but the, the reverse is not true. If you have mental health needs, the gospel by itself is not going to magically make you better. You're going to need medical care. And so mental health is a medical issue. So I think restricting counseling to only biblical counselors runs the risk of putting a hurting person in treatment with someone who is not qualified to treat their mental health care needs. And the second thing it does is it creates a situation where biblical insights are easily applied, but often misunderstood. They're often misapplied and it can prolong guilt and shame. One example is um, forgiveness. You know, as a trauma survivor, you know, I've been told, well, you need to forgive. And often survivors are told that right away by mostly well-meaning biblical counselors. Like first meeting. Yeah, you need to, no kidding. Let's let's work you work on forgiveness, and then that will take care of some of your your lingering depression, trauma, resentment, anger, whatever. So they're being abused again at that point. Yes, and so oh, these spiritual kind, spiritual true spiritual practices and biblical insights that are valuable are being used as medical care when that's not the place for them. And the time for forgiveness for a trauma survivor is lifelong. It's not right at the beginning. And so a, a trauma-informed counselor would never say that, would instead deal with the presenting symptoms. A biblical counselor is going to immediately offer biblical insight. And so I think there's 
a, a, there's probably a great balance somewhere of a therapist who is a Christian and has a Christian client and is able to, to capitalize on that person's faith. But from my experience, the therapists that I have been to have not been Christians, but they have valued my faith and affirmed my faith and never tried to interfere with it. And to me, I think that is the best balance. I never knew anything about their faith because the boundaries were intact, but they never diminished mine and they never tried to mix in anything. Uh, they never said, go to church more, you'll feel better. Hmm. So I think it's far past time for the church to uh, abandon the idea that mental health is best treated through biblical counseling. I think the best example of handling mental health well in the, in the Christian community now is at Saddleback Church. Hmm. I think by far they've got the best model. Hmm. And that uh, broad strokes, like what, what does that uh, entail? They, they have relationships with uh, counselors in the, in the area? Yeah, they actually refer people to trained counselors. They have trained counselors. Rick and Kay Warren have done a great job of recognizing that mental health needs medical treatment. And, um, and they, don't, they don't try to draw a path through biblical counseling. And then if that fails, you can go see a secular counselor. They've done a good job of normalizing mental health as being just part of the body, just part of the body that God gave us. And getting treatment in the in the best way that you can. Susan, I, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you would like to add that that I didn't ask uh, that you think I should have asked or uh, that you'd like to address? No, I'm kind of glad we didn't talk about CRT. Um, I do think that <laughs> that's a huge distraction right now, but I'm, I'm glad we didn't talk about it. I've, I've been I've been beating that drum for a while that it's a distraction. I, I, I completely agree with you and i'm and i'm happy to see that a lot of folks are coming to this realization <laughs> it's a code word or a code phrase that's right that's mm -hmm. right it's deployed to dismiss all conversations around systems or institutions well susan i'm, I'm so glad that we got to talk and i really appreciate your uh, I, I always have a sense of joy whenever we talk, and I really appreciate that, uh, of, uh, that sense of your joy. And uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me sort of uh, on the record for the podcast, and I'm, I'm, sure we'll, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you.